Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, the 15th of July. And in this episode of The Briefing, there are things in life that are hard to talk about, and some of them include death, sex, race. And as our guests will explain, it's often really worth having those conversations as hard as they are. That's what hard conversations can do. They don't fix hard stuff. They don't make hard stuff go away. In fact, they make you face hard stuff. That's when the breakthroughs come. You look at it and then you look around at who can help you through. It's a really interesting conversation about having those hard conversations. That is our briefing in a moment. Our first Jan Fran is here. Um, she's gotten out of her apartment for one of the first times this week. <laughs> Don the face mask, come into the studio. How are you doing, Jan? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm feeling a bit blurg. That's the best way to describe it, I think. You know, we're two weeks into a month-long lockdown. That's the vibe. Yeah, and I saw your um, story about that vaccine bungle last week with AstraZeneca in news.com, and it just sort of brought it home how chaotic it is to read the advice at the moment for people. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, more and more people in Sydney are probably wanting to get vaccinated Mm. given the size of the outbreak and some of the consequences, particularly for younger people. Yeah, and the changing ATAGI advice, which was an interesting development since last week. All right, let's get into today's headlines. Well, mask orders for Victorians and fears of a possible snap lockdown. As of this morning, Victorians over the age of 12 will have to wear masks indoors and outdoors. And this is, of course, as the state battles a growing number of COVID cases that have been linked to Sydney's outbreak. At this point in time, we're not going to take any chances with this one. That was Victoria's COVID response commander, Jerome Weimar, speaking yesterday. Um, The rules were announced last night following a day where the state announced 11 new local cases linked to different clusters coming from Sydney. Yeah, so nine of the cases were linked to the Maribyrnong apartment complex, which is currently in lockdown. And another two cases have been linked to a family who had recently returned from Sydney. And Jerome Weimar revealed that the removalists at the centre of the Maribyrnong outbreak hadn't been wearing masks and hadn't been fully cooperating with authorities. Books will be thrown when it's time, when it's appropriate to throw them. And I've got, I'm ex- yeah, exceptionally frustrated at the pace and transparency of information coming from the removalist. Yeah, he's been saying for a few days he's not getting the information he wants out of these removalists who travelled to uh, Victoria and then South Australia. I'm not yeah. sure how that happens because you are required to cooperate fully with authorities and give all of the details of your travel and situation. Well, they weren't able to get it out of them for some reason, so they don't know exactly where they stopped along the way. They did have the permits to cross the borders, but, yeah, it's it's creating big problems. And I think Victorians will be watching very closely when their government do a, a press conference at some point today to see what they do next. Well, it has been confirmed, as we mentioned at the top of the show, that Sydney's lockdown will be extended. It'll last through to the end of the month and the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian has set a benchmark for when rules could be lifted. Always uh, hurts to say this, but we need to extend the lockdown a further, at least a further two weeks. The number of infections in the community we want to get down to zero. Yeah, 31 of yesterday's 97 uh, new local cases were still out in the community while infectious. So that's the number we're focusing on now. Yeah. It seemed in previous lockdowns, it was all just about community cases, a very blunt measure. But now we're, and this goes to this idea of uh, the contact tracers getting ahead of the outbreak, um, knowing that all of the new cases had already been in contact with authorities and isolating. 
that's the big one because mm. if you've contracted COVID but you're in quarantine with your family, then you're not at risk to the rest of the community and you stay in quarantine for up to two weeks until you test negative, right? So this target of getting that number down to zero uh, comes as one particular suburb, Fairfield, um, has been required to test, the residents rather, have been required to test every three days for COVID if they are to travel outside of the area for essential work. Um, This is frustrating a lot of the residents there. We've seen pictures all over the news last night of these really long, snaking, what looks like the worst car park ever. (laughs) People are saying it's taken them hours to get tested in some of these areas. And Fairfield's Mayor, Frank Carbone, told the ABC that with some people waiting this long, it showed that the community was following the rules but that the government needed to do more. The community has responded. They should provide more clinics and they should extend the times for everybody. Yeah, understandable frustration. Um, Some people were saying they waited up to eight hours. That's hell. Yeah, that's awful. I mean, it it is an LGA that is presenting with a high number of cases and a Mm. high number of people in the community and that's why they have been put under these stronger restrictions. But really frustrating for people in those areas that have just been doing the right thing and want to get on with their life. Scott Morrison made some comments about Atagi. Yeah, well, he's pointed the finger at Atagi. That's, of course, our vaccine regulator, um, blaming them for the slow vaccine rollout, saying that they were too cautious in their advice to under 40s. So Atagi has shifted their advice. At first, they were saying that Pfizer is the preferred vaccine for under 40s. Now they're saying that people in the Sydney outbreak might want to consider AstraZeneca, just given the size of the outbreak. Um, This has led the PM to sort of blame them for being a little bit too cautious um, and saying that uh, the slow vaccine rollout sort of rests on their shoulders, which I think is a little bit unfair. And Queensland saved face to snare the last of three state of origins. They won 20-18 to against the Blues last night on the Gold Coast after losing the first two rounds. Yeah, so last night's game was, I mean, it was originally meant to be played in Sydney and then I think it was moved to Newcastle and then it was relocated again to the GC because of a COVID outbreak. Now, this is the final game of the series. It came after a day where 12 NRL teams based in New South Wales and the ACT also relocated to Queensland, again due to growing COVID cases south of the border. Yeah, so those players, coaches, staff, some of their families will have to go into quarantine um, in Queensland. So very difficult for them. There's also challenges popping up for the AFL now with these cases in Melbourne. And one person was infectious whilst at the MCG at a game. Mm. WA have shut their borders, which makes it hard. So watch that space as well. And Cuban-Americans have held protests in the US in solidarity with anti-government protests that are happening in Cuba. So you can hear there the flag-waving crowds uh, tanking to the major streets in Florida uh, in solidarity with the massive protests that are happening just over the, the water in the Caribbean in Cuba. Yeah, so protesters in Cuba have been clashing with police really since last week. They're calling on the government to do more to address food and medicine shortages, as well as just the general rising cost of living. Um, The US government, though, says that it supports the protesters in Cuba, but Cuban-Americans have been calling on Biden to do more. All right, Jan, we'll catch you tomorrow. Katrina's about to join us as we talk about hard conversations. We're not going to have any hard conversations. We're just going to talk about them. Katrina Blowers is here. Hey, Katrina. Hey. How good are you at having hard conversations? 
Oh, I don't love them, but I'm getting better at them. The hard part is to sit in that discomfort, right, mm. of knowing that you might potentially upset someone else or upset yourself mm. by going there. I mean, how good are you? Like, what do you do? Oh, I don't know. I'd like to think that I am because I know if something feels hard that there might be something there that you mm. can... A nugget of gold. Yeah, resolve or so, there might be something to gain from the pain. It's, you mm. know, so often the way in life. If I feel that discomfort, I try and listen to it. But, you know, then you get these strong reactions sometimes, you know, it can make you feel angry or, you know, all kinds of things. And who knows? And this is refreshing because mm. I know a lot of women, their biggest complaint when they talk to their partners about hard things is that they jump in and try to fix stuff. That's kind mm. of the cliche, isn't it? That men try to fix things and women just want to be heard. Well, yeah. I mean, we talk about the hard thing being having the conversation, but the harder thing can be listening to the hard conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and this topic of conversation is where the juice of life is, according to Anna Sale, who has written a whole book about it called mm. Let's Talk About Hard Things, Death, Sex and Money. They're really the three key areas, aren't they, Tom? Yeah, she goes into some other really tricky stuff as well, like politics and identity and privilege and that kind of stuff. She's got an interesting backstory. She was a, you know, a general news reporter, a bit like you and I used to lie with Seven News and we do here on The Briefing, but then mm. she had a life-changing divorce and that made her rethink things and she started this whole podcast about hard conversations. It's called Death, Sex and Money. It's with WNYC Studios out of New York and she's written a book compiling all these stories that she's gathered from people over the years plus her own reflections. It's called Let's Talk About Hard Things. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Now, this is something I think we all struggle with. And you say in your book that hard conversations can be life-changing. Talk us through what makes things so hard to talk about. It can be that it's we don't have a lot of practice with something like money or death or that we just, you know, aren't sure how bringing something up that has been unsaid in a relationship, how that's going to go. So we might avoid a hard conversation. But when I say they can be life-changing, like I really mean that. Like when you push yourself to try, whether it's asking an open question of someone in your life about something you don't understand or need more information about, or it's expressing something you haven't, that, that takes your relationship to a new level. Too often we, we skip past those opportunities. So let's get into some of the great topic areas that you discuss. One of them is death. You have a really interesting conversation with the famous um, US News anchorwoman, Katie Couric, and she admits to dishonesty in conversations she had with her dying husband. Tell us about that. Yeah, she said this to me on my show, Death, Sex and Money, when I was asking her about her first husband's death from cancer. And she talked about, you know, basically looking back at that time of when she was really trying to be positive and be kind of cheerleader for him while he went through cancer treatment and realizing that there was dishonesty because they didn't admit to each other that he might die. And he did die. And so they didn't have a conversation about what that was going to mean for her, for their girls who were little at the time. That's a hole she's not been able to fill because he's gone. So what do you think she wish that she'd said in that situation and what impact could that have had? 
Well, I think there is a way to lovingly say to someone who is facing a really serious illness to say, I really think you are strong. I think you are going to get through this. But have you thought about if you don't like do you want to talk about that? And really leave it up to them for for where they want to take it. I mean, who knows what he might have said. He might have said, I don't want to talk about that. He might have said, I've thought about that. Here's what I wish for you, for our girls. That's a conversation we don't know where it would have gone. How much of this is about our own discomfort and how much of this is about protecting the feelings of other people? Oh, I think it's both. (laughs) I think it's both like I understand the instinct of wanting to not talk about something that is going to make someone you care about uncomfortable, you know, that we, we want to be loving in that way. When you do that, you are forfeiting an opportunity to understand and to love each other, perhaps in a deeper way. And I think that often when we avoid conversations that make us uncomfortable or we're afraid will make somebody else uncomfortable. In any relationship that you want to be deep is to think about how to have more honesty. You kick off your book with your own personal story of going through a divorce and you you met your ex-partner in college and it sounded like the thing that was so hard to talk about for you guys at the end was that you both didn't want it anymore, which is obviously just the most brutal thing you would have to say. But when you finally did, it really helped. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was what was so hard for me in the end of my marriage was, you know, it was really sad. It wasn't an ending that either of us expected. And I actually like, I learned a lot when I was reflecting on that, the end of that marriage, I came across something that a the business school professor had talked about with negotiation. And, and she pointed out that often, you know, we talk about successful negotiations as being negotiations that get to a deal, that get you to an agreement. And, and she pointed out, no, 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 no. A successful negotiation can sometimes be where you realize that you're not going to be able to come to a good deal for both of you. So you decide not to make a deal. We didn't mess up at talking about hard things because we didn't figure out a way to stay together. We just became more and more honest and clear with one another. And it allowed us to see that we didn't need to stay married to each other. We wanted different things. So we've got some topics of hard conversation like death, sex and money, which I think, you know, they're pretty universal. We can all relate to those. But what about the topics where one party can't relate so much, such as things like identity, politics, um, race, privilege, those kinds of things? How do we navigate that terrain? I think it's really important when you're talking across differences to really think ahead of, be aware for yourself, like where are you oriented in this conversation? For example, are you someone when you move through the world, you primarily have a feeling of belonging or are you someone who has primarily had a feeling in public spaces and workplaces of of being different, of being the one person who's not like other people. Depending on how you're oriented should be how you think about your role in the in conversations across identity differences. If you are someone like me, who's a white woman, who's worked in newsrooms where there's mostly other white people, my role in a conversation at work, for example, if I'm talking to somebody who's not like me, 
My role is to listen more because I can learn things about what I don't notice or encounter in my daily life by hearing from someone else. You know, if you are someone for whom being different is a daily routine exercise and you are often called upon to explain yourself, you can think about whether you have the energy to do that that day, you know, because that that is a taxing exercise. But the most important thing, I think, in conversations across identity is to really allow for the possibility that you are not going to end the conversation with this great feeling of like, oh, now I understand. Now I feel close. Now I can intuit how you move through the world. Like conversations across difference might just make you realize like, wow, there's going to be this gap in, in my understanding. So it's a really just about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, isn't it? And you just mentioned listening and you say that um, one of the most important skills in having tough conversations is how you listen. I'd love to know what are your tips on becoming a better listener? I mean, I think it's really important to focus in a hard conversation on am I understanding what this person is trying to communicate to me? I think it can be very easy, especially if it's in a difficult moment where you're disagreeing to sort of get into a like battle or to be reacting to what someone is trying to say to you. And I think if you can focus on slowing down and asking follow-up questions for clarity, oh, you say this, like, I want to understand, is this what you mean? And really try to like make sure the person who is talking to you feels heard then you can come back and you can say, after you have really listened, then you can say, I hear what you're saying. I see it differently. And you don't have to agree, but you've given them the respect of making them feel like you want to understand what they're saying and not just have a battle about who's right. Why is being heard so valuable to us as human beings? What we are conveying when someone really tries to understand what we're saying is like, you matter, you know, Mm. at the end of the day, when all of us are born, we want to feel seen, we want to feel heard. This sounds like this has just changed the entire course of your life. Oh, yeah. I mean, I did write the book because I'm very good at talking about hard things as a journalist. And I wanted to think about, oh, well, here are the ways I can get better at this as a spouse, as a family member, as a friend. It's much harder in real life with people you care about to listen and talk about hard things because the stakes are different. Mm -hmm. The stakes are much higher, but it's really important. It's really important to work at it, to practice and to try. So Anna, the core of so much of this is this natural human reaction, which is to try and avoid pain, whether it's for ourselves or for people we care about. Do you think that whenever we sense that discomfort, that that's a sign there might be something to work on there. There might be a breakthrough. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's something that unfortunately a lot of us have had practice with in this last year and a half about like, what do we do with painful, sad feelings? And I think that that's a really important core part of my book, which is a lot of this hard stuff you can't fix with words. You can't fix death, for example, bring someone back or ease the pain of grief with the right words. But what you can do is you can acknowledge that there's hard stuff in life with words and use that as a way to accompany people when they're feeling discomfort, when they're feeling pain, when they're feeling alone. 
So that's what hard conversations can do. They don't fix hard stuff. They don't make hard stuff go away. In fact, they make you face hard stuff. But that, again, as you say, is that's when the breakthroughs come. You look at it and then you look around at who can help you through. That was Anna Sale, author of Let's Talk About Hard Things, Death, Sex and Money. What do you make of that, Katrina? Yeah, look, it definitely made me feel like there's... There's growth to be had in going there, right? Even when you don't feel like you're necessarily getting anywhere at the time. We want solutions. We want growth. But then, <laughs> Yeah, but even, even that's not possible sometimes, which is what, what I liked about what she was saying, that just the empathising part of it by opening up and listening to someone around these tough things is enough mirroring back to them what they're feeling so that they feel heard. I'm going to give that a bit of a go. Maybe that's something I haven't been so great at in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the power of being heard, that, that was something that really stood out as well. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to talk to Ash Barty and Dylan Olcott's mindset coach to get inside uh, the heads of these champions. And by the way, if you've listened to this point of the podcast, well, good for you because you'll have a better chance of doing well in our Instagram quiz. Follow us on the gram if you don't already. Uh, On Fridays, we throw out some quiz questions and they're all written from things that have been in the podcast. So if you're a strong, good, attentive listener, you will do well. Listener.